0: Welcome to today's episode of the Ideonomics Podcast, where we talk about inclusion, diversity, equity, accessibility, and anti-racism in the Canadian Public Service. I'm your co-host Neha Shizad Chandarajan, joining you from Ottawa, which is the land of the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe peoples.
1: And I'm Sean Karmali, joining you from Toronto, which is traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples.
0: Today, we're being joined by Deputy Minister Daniel Kwan Watson. Hi, Deputy. Good morning. Hi, how are you?
2: I am very well, thanks, for a sunny morning here on Monday on Edmonton, so
0: fantastic wonderful i'm wondering if you could just give a quick introduction of yourself for our listeners
2: Sure. Well, currently, um, I am the Deputy Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Northern Affairs. It's my fifth deputy appointment over the years. I started uh, my federal career in Vancouver on East Van as a PM1 and started a career where I assumed I might make it to BM3 before I retired and took a couple of detours on the way and have enjoyed several different departments and took a decade off to work with the two provincial governments of Saskatchewan and British Columbia before coming back to the federal family and have enjoyed my time in all of those places enormously.
0: Oh, that's so great. I didn't know you had um, experience in the provinces. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, it was a great and fantastic experience.
1: Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And you mentioned about uh, having that experience. When you think about that moment just before the PM1 position that you had, could you take us back to that time when you decided uh, to begin a career in government? Uh, where were you in life? What was your headspace like? And, you know, what did you know about your, your identity at the time?
2: Mm, all, all excellent questions. You know, at the time, my headspace was I have to pay my student loans. And I had you know, finished university earlier after several years and accumulated what uh, was then a massive debt, probably not comparable to the debts that people have to incur today, given the way things have gone in the world. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, it was uh, more than I could afford to pay by being unemployed. And so I was looking all over the place, but I knew I wanted to work for government. I had had a job with the Government of Ontario as a summer student in a place called Smith's Falls, Ontario, at what was known as the Rideau Regional Centre there. And it was a life-changing experience to Mm -hmm. be able to work there as a student. I learned some lessons there that I continue to use to this day and i was enthused by public service i was enthused by what it did i was enthused by what it stood for and i was enthused by what it accomplished and i just really hoped that of all the things that i was looking at and you know i was looking at everything there was because it didn't matter how i paid the student loans uh, i had to make sure i did and you know when i got the offer to be a supervisor of a Canada employment center for students. I thought it was the most wonderful imaginable opportunity. And it turned out to be exactly that. And that is what started me on the path that I'm on now. And let people in a little secret, you know, I love my job as a deputy, but I love my job as a PM1 in mm. East Vancouver every bit as much as I love what I'm doing now. I don't think I'd want to go back to PM1 at this stage of my career, but boy, did I like it then.
1: Wonderful. You know, it reminded me when you were just talking about that that Service Canada Centre for Youth. I think that's what they, they call it. I used to be part of that and it just resonated with, with me right away because that's that's part of the the trajectory of where I was. And so um, when you think about that moment of, of joining the public service and what an opportunity it represented, what would you say to people today who are listening to this podcast, who are thinking about, you know, wanting to join the public service?
2: Yeah, I, I think the fundamentals have, have always stayed the same. And the fundamentals is that the public service is something about something that is about and much bigger than any single one of us. It's mm-hmm. about changing the lives of our fellow citizens. It's about making sure that the institutions that we run are playing a role that shapes this country very differently than often happens in so many other places and very much for the better. And I have seen public servants in so many different departments and in so many different governments, uh, provincial and federal and territorial and others, who have that constant set of values to make things better for their community, make things better for their country, make things better for their fellow citizens, and to be able to work with people like that day in day out has always inspired me I still remember the names of all sorts of people I started out with and I just watched them and I looked at what drove them to do the things they did I mean there there were no bonuses for you know getting x y or z done twice as fast or you know twice as many it was about the help you gave people and that's what drove them and that's one of the things that they showed me right off the bat was that was the value system is you help people and you make things better for them wherever you can and i just found that inspiring right from the very beginning And I would say that, you know, it's not that every day is sort of like the ending of some exciting movie with great music and sort of interesting lighting and, you know, you get to be a hero. Sometimes it's uh, just a lot of hard work. And sometimes not a lot of people necessarily notice, but that driving force of making things better, of helping people,
0: Mm -hmm. of
2: having institutions that Canadians rely on, that's a pretty special place to be.
0: And as a PM you probably saw that firsthand and were able to take that in your career. Is that something? Yeah.
2: That- uh, you're like you're like literally at the front desk and, and, and having people come in. Mm -hmm. I deliberately chose East Vancouver. I'd lived in Vancouver for many years, Mm -hmm. and there were four offices, and I'd been a student placement officer in the summer, so I learned how eligibility lists worked. We still had those in those days, and the way things worked there, they were ranked eligibility lists, and I was bold enough to ask where I had ranked, and I had ranked number one. Mm-hmm. And when the person phoned to offer me the job, I said, well, I guess, and I knew there were four offices across the city. And uh, I said, I guess I get to choose which office I want to go to. And there was yeah. this pause. And she said, I'll get back to you and hung up. And I was, oops, what have I done now? And oh. she phoned back and she said, yes, yes, you do. Oh, and you. I said, good, I want East Vancouver. And there was this pause. And she said, "Um, do you know Vancouver very well? And I said, I know Vancouver very, very well. Uh, One of the places that was available is near UBC, One of them was in North Vancouver, one of them was Richmond, all of which are reasonably affluent communities. And I knew that if I worked there, I would just be seeing the same people that I saw everywhere else in my, you know, future work life, school, how I'd grown up, because most of us tend to congregate in the types of neighborhoods in which we have grown up in many instances, at least. Vancouver Mm. East was very, very, very different. And that's why I wanted it. And so I would run into, there's a place called Playland, for example. And this was a uh, place inside the city of Vancouver. It was an exhibition and a little bit like the CNE in Toronto or maybe the X one that used to exist in in Ottawa. And you would have these 12 year olds showing up looking for jobs because you could get certain jobs at the age of 12. And these children were so nervous and they were so wanting to get those jobs. And you realized that their families needed them to have jobs. And sometimes parents after they got the job would bring the children back to say, thank you. And you realized I am seeing now a part of this country that I didn't grow up with. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the impact on lives that I had not seen before. And this is all from being at the very front we would ask you know sometimes if they would have cash register experience and you know you're asking 12 year olds and so you're assuming that you're going to get no answer they would say yeah i've been doing cash for four years now and you'd kind of think what wow. and they say, well yeah i work at mom and dad's uh, store mm-hmm. and um some of these kids understood the cra audit practices because oh. they were the translators for mom and dad in the family business when they were getting audited. This is a world totally outside anything that I ever grew up with. And so to be able to be at the very forefront, to understand in a profoundly different way, Mm -hmm. the impact that these services had uh, put me on a path to understanding who we need to listen to, who we need to hear, who we need to see in a very different way than I would have imagined up to that point in time. Uh, it may be one of the best career decisions I ever made was to make sure that I went to Vancouver East.
0: There's so much that you learn from the front line or so much that you could take with you because I feel that a lot of people in the public service that are either in the EC, they're not really in the program side, um, don't see that face-to-face, they don't see, they don't always feel like they're making that difference. You
2: can do it from a distance, though. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, they explained to us very clearly when we got in uh, what our future was likely going to be, and in those days in that region, um, there was no labor shortage, that's for sure, and they made it really clear you're going to spend at least six years as a PM1. And then at least six years as a PM2. And if you're lucky, if there's a PM3 available, you might be able to apply on that after 12 to 15 years. That was just normal. Nobody sort of, you know, not... I don't think anybody was real thrilled about it, but everybody mm. just understood that was the case. I was a little bit lucky. I was in Vancouver, and they needed somebody to work on official languages and privacy and human rights and, and other mm. things like that. And so uh, in a very bold move, after three or four months in, I applied for the PM3 job, and I got it. Oh,
3: now, amazing.
2: when I was there... Um, it was at the old Employment Immigration Canada. So that included all of what citizenship uh, and okay. refugees uh, Canada now, and it includes all of what CSDC now. So it was quite massive. Mm-hmm. I was dealing with human rights issues and privacy issues. And there was this case where this um, mother had brought the child to Canada and uh, to flee a war in a particular country where they were, Um, drafting very young children into that war. And this, under the law of that country, made that child a deserter. Now, it took a long time to get the refugee hearing, and the mother went back to the country and was unable to be found. Now, as often happens, if a parent travels with a child to explain the refugee case, all of the information is in the mother's file. and. The child's file basically had next to nothing in it. And so when the hearing was coming up, the lawyers for the child were saying, listen, we need the mom's file because that has all all of the -hmm. story about fleeing for refugee status and why. And it was a big, long file and we had it and those of us involved had read the whole thing. And everyone in the department right up to the experts was saying no you don't have any right to this file under access to information or under privacy Mm -hmm. and uh, that left this boy who is considered a deserter by the country that his mother had left uh, in danger of being sent back and it was absolutely known that the penalty for that was death Mm -hmm. and so It was one of these things where the whole system was saying, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried, but there's no way we can do this. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking it was wrong. That can't possibly be the right answer. And so I tried every exemption in the book and people started to get actually quite tired of me taking this on. (laughs) And then, um, you know, I thought I'm going to have one last go with this. And I reread the entire act. Now, remember, I'm like four months into my job. I'm 24 years old. I'm dealing with the experts from national headquarters on this. Who am I? And I went and instead of reading the exemptions, I started at the beginning of the act.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In the beginning of the act, the first provision was information is only to be used for the purposes for which it was given. And I thought, this has to be the answer. And so Mm -hmm. I sort of took a big gulp. I called all the experts back who were tired of hearing me, didn't want to hear about this anymore, the lawyers, the experts in privacy, the others. And I said, you know, I know I've tried every exemption possible in the book to have this information shared, and I know you said no to all of it. Mm -hmm. But here's another provision. It says that the information provided is only to be used for the purpose for which it's provided. There's probably a 200 page file where the mother had poured out her heart of her just terror of what was gonna happen to her son. And I said, is there a single one of you that won't say that the purpose for which she gave this information was to save his life? Mm -hmm. And there was just stone cold silence. And I'll never forget it was DOJ that popped up first Mm
3: -hmm. and said,
2: that's good for me. And then everybody else said the same. Now, I have no idea what happened. I have no idea what happened in the hearing. That wasn't my issue. But what I do know is that even from that sort of EC-ish type position, that analyst type position, that thing that wasn't frontline, I made a difference that day. Mm -hmm. And he got the hearing that he was entitled to have. And we don't all get to do those things all day long. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the way that government has changed your life, either by the things that it has done or by the things that it hasn't done, the things that it's done well, the things it's not done so well, Mm -hmm. the difference between all those things is a really small number of people that are thinking about these things right through the system. Mm -hmm. And there is no sort of greater likelihood of making that difference in the most senior ranks uh, from an EC3. It's mm-hmm. what you spot, it's it's how you see things, it's what you bring mm-hmm. forward, and it's the the contributions you make.
0: Well, thank you for that. I think that's uh going to be inspiring for a lot of people who are sort of on the on the bottom rungs. Mm-hmm. Well, you said also that it's about changing the lives of, of fellow citizens, right? And arguably we could do that best when we feel empowered to to be able to change things within our institution, or like you said, spot things within our institutions and Uh, be heard and find that sort of belonging. And so how did your, your understanding of your identity sort of shape the choices that you made in your work? And how did you find that belonging? Like, did you have networks or committees um, or mentors who were able to, to help you find that here?
2: You know, I saw that question in the prep materials, and I loved it, uh, because it actually made me think about how far we have come Um, in 1982, 7% of all executives were female. And it was considered the great experiment and the veterans. And I mean, veterans literally, cause a lot of them had come out of the Korean war who were all men in their late fifties, early sixties uh, in the group that I worked in, many of them felt very free to be very vocal about how very stupid an idea it was to have women in management positions. Mm-hmm. And they would talk about it openly and don't even get onto the topic of race. Like mm-hmm. people, so when I was doing privacy, I regularly had people who wanted to, government officials, who wanted to hold back comments that were just blatantly black and white racist uh, in there. And it was just the way they talked about people.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: the idea of talking about inclusion, uh, yeah. the idea of talking about race, the idea you sure weren't going to talk about uh, Um, sexual orientation because you know the purge uh, went on to the early 90s in the federal institutions right Mm -hmm. so it is you didn't talk about nonetheless I knew who I was and nonetheless I knew what it meant to not have my views included or the background or history of people included in And so I think, no, there were no networks, right? Um, That that would not have been cool. That would have been seen as a dangerous thing. But it's changed enormously. Mm -hmm. We're having this conversation. We're having this, um, uh, doing it as a podcast. Mm -hmm. I've been through parts of my career where you might meet secretly with people and quietly talk about these things, but you sure weren't going to make it public. And and here we are, talking about it openly, uh, having these conversations so it was hit and miss Uh, i didn't have anybody to look up to in most of the positions i had that was a person of color for example who had quote unquote made it so you had to learn these things along the way there were a few but very few Mm -hmm. and you know i think as you know to this moment i am the very first ever deputy minister in the federal public service to be of chinese canadian ancestry Mm
3: -hmm. and what that
2: means is Um, There are precious few people that I can look to that sort of uh, are the same type of role models. Sure, I've looked at some fantastic uh, deputy ministers before, and I've learned enormous things from them. That's true. But when a Canadian wins something on the world stage uh, or is recognized on the world stage, we feel differently about that than watching an American win it for the 19th time. And uh, it is different when somebody uh, who shares some or part of your background Mm -hmm. is suddenly the person who is actually being able to achieve these things. And, you know, one of the things that I think I'm most proud of in in my career is that as I have gone through, been able to relieve others of some of that pressure
1: in -hmm. some ways
2: and have them look and say, okay, it, it can be done. It's possible. So, um, you know, let me make my mark in the knowledge that it can be done.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: because when I was coming through, it wasn't clear that it can be done. As a deputy minister, you get this wall of photos along your, uh, the, the wall up to your office. Mm-hmm. I've been a deputy minister, uh, as I was noting, uh, through five separate appointments. Not once has one of those photos had a person of color in it ahead of me.
3: And yeah.
2: um, it's a bit of a reminder. Of how much things have changed, and it's a bit of a reminder of the importance of role models as well.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, just think hearing you talk about, um, you know, and those those portraits on the wall. You know, it, can, it reminds us all, I'm sure, of even even being in high school or being in 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 universities and seeing, you know, different leaders and and um, and and strands that they come from in society. Taking our conversation right now, you know, which which has elements of, uh, of discussion about anti-racism in it. Uh, there was a letter that you had written uh, almost two years ago detailing your your life experiences with with racism. And and there was a quote that you mentioned in it, which was which was quite powerful. You mentioned we have crossed a line uh, that we can't come back from. And there is a saying that some things once seen can't be unseen. And I think we've we've done that. When we think about efforts in government today to curb racism, what's your current impression of that? And the latter part would be, you know, what what kind of work, in your view, still needs to be done?
2: Yeah, the earth-shattering difference is um, that we're actually talking about it, mm-hmm. and you know that I think especially if you're younger you might sort of raise your eyebrows and say you know well wait a minute isn't that the bare minimum i you know my life and career experience is here to say no that isn't the bare minimum right like again i go back to the stuff that i would go back to uh, people and explain Uh, you know, had written all over somebody's employment insurance file, uh, all sorts of racist stuff. Uh, Uh You know, I still remember this one comment. Well, obviously they're a liar. They are a, and then fill in the racial insult, right? Like this is a government of Canada official writing it down in the official file and then being surprised that I wouldn't uh, authorize it to uh, be back. And I can just guarantee you that, um, you know, they went back and the whole, I'm sure they would have argued that the only reason I said no is to embarrass them because I too was, you know, and they would have said an immigrant, um, uh, you know, notwithstanding that my great-grandfather first came to this country over, you know, uh, well over a hundred years ago. But we're having these conversations now, and there's a willingness to understand these things. Um, It's, It is built into a conversation. It's built into a set of values that we can't go back from. There is a lot of work to do. You know, the number of people that uh, wrote back to me, in very good faith, and who said, you know, after I published my letter, uh, I had no idea this went on in Canada. And that is a surprising number. Of Canadians, it's a surprising number of public servants, and you know I remind people all the time because I speak to a lot of executive groups, is that you know almost every single person who is an employee of yours, who's a person of color, uh, who is a person uh, uh, you know in the two SLGBTQQIA group or uh, any number of other groups can tell you their own versions. Mm-hmm. Of that story, yeah, and it might be a different number, it might be a different set of examples, but the fundamentals are are there and if that surprises you, then that's a bit of an indication of some of the work we need to do, because what I said to some of the people that told me that they had no idea that uh, these things had happened, I said to them, remember you know, such and such a meeting? He said, oh, yeah, I remember that. That's when this happened and you were in the room. Uh-huh. And what it is, is about not necessarily recognizing these things for what they are. Uh-huh. And I don't attribute it to malice. I don't attribute it to everybody. It is just outside the frame of reference uh-huh. that people often understand. And I think we're changing that Frame of reference, and I think we're seeing a willingness to change that reference. But all change is hard. But I think there's a great example that gives me enormous hope on this. From. As a young public servant you know one of those veterans from the Korean War some apparently saw something in me and took me aside one day when there was some option for some promotion he said Daniel I just will give you a piece of advice I, you know, want you to be careful uh, you'd be having a woman manager if you worked over there and for him that was enough just to suggest you, you sure don't want to do that you know I don't know what mm. he men but it just like wasn't a good thing for my otherwise promising career if i asked either of you how many female managers have you had number one you'd be insulted by the question so would all of your your listeners and number two if you agreed for some inexplicable reason to try and do the count you'd have to really think about it because it's a question you don't ask yourself Mm. we've gone in the space of my single career From this not only being an oddity but openly mocked Mm -hmm. to a point where we have gotten to a very, very, very different place. And I think the work that we and it doesn't mean that there are no issues there. It doesn't mean that we've solved it all, but we are in a profoundly different place. And I see us on the same trajectory when it comes to questions of race.
0: Yeah, of course. And I think you're right. It is a bit of that people it, comments or or any questions like that. They don't come from a place of malice, right? Like sometimes it's just our brain puts those blinders on certain things that just need to be pointed out to us.
2: Um, well, I mean, just like when I'm dealing with these twelve-year-olds who are looking for job, I got a job when I was twelve too, delivering newspapers. But mm-hmm. I did it because I wanted to buy more comic books.
0: Yeah.
2: I didn't have any Pickle. frame of reference where, in order to pay the rent, these children need to work. That's right. You know, or it's the difference between eating just about enough versus not eating enough. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's just a totally different frame of reference. That said, there were no doubt children in my high school
3: mm-hmm.
2: and elementary school who are living in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a part of my consciousness. And I yeah. think that's that's often uh, what we run into.
0: It's going to shift gears because um, you mentioned that you're in Edmonton right now. Oh, uh, yeah. And, um, yeah. And uh, I was wondering what, and this is, it's something that's been on, I think, a lot of public servants' minds, is what your um, impression is of the current future of work strategy, like the return to the office strategies in federal government. Um, And how do you believe that they would be addressing anti-racism and whether you think that they're being inclusive as they're being set out now?
2: No, all excellent questions. We're doing a couple of interesting transitions at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a very different world if we hadn't had COVID-19, we hadn't had the experience that we've had over that. And we were trying to figure out what's the next way. Now we were already doing that, right? Like mm-hmm. we were already moving to different setups of workplaces. And I think the um, the advent of the pandemic put a lot of that on steroids. It sent us all away from each other. You know, when I left the Thursday, March the 12th, I thought I was going back to Edmonton for the weekend. I had a meeting on Friday and I'd be back in Ottawa on the Sunday and I didn't make it back for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe a couple of day trips here and there. But I also think, too, like a lot changes in two and a half years. You're not just going back as if it was after two weeks. Your your old habits keep you in the same directions you were going before. And I think we're both transitioning away from two and a half years of a very, very different work experience. Mm -hmm. And we're also, though, continuing the... Uh, move away from the traditional workspace that I had started my career in and Mm -hmm. if you go back to 1989 you had a single physical space and god help you if you you know got into somebody else's physical space and there Mm -hmm. were some very real differentiations over who had closed offices and who had cubicles and and things like that yeah and we're moving away from that today and we're moving away from that even more quickly post COVID than we were before. But you know, I talk to a lot of public servants and I talk to a lot of public servants of color and mm-hmm. it's amazing to me the number who are most worried about the public transit ride getting yeah. into work. And in some parts of this country, even more so than others, the incidence of hate crimes has gone up exponentially. Uh, The willingness of people to simply make uh, caustic remarks or insulting remarks, uh, even if they don't rise to the level of the criminal, is something that is very different than we've seen in a long time in this country. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that... uh, In line with the conversations that we're having today that we wouldn't have had in the past, I know for a fact that even at the deputy level, this is something that is being discussed, that is being thought through. No one set of decision makers has all the wisdom, all the knowledge on that front. Mm -hmm. We need, just like with occupational health and safety, where Mm -hmm. the people living the experience need to be a key part of telling people, like, what what's dangerous? What is bringing injury here? What is uh, risky? It's the same thing in this environment. And I think people are tuned very differently than they would have been in the past to actually thinking about that. Unfortunately, for some very sad reasons, because we've seen the videos of attacks on (laughs) subways, on buses, on on things like that. We've we've read about the accounts. And sadly, there have been a significantly greater number of them, particularly in some major parts of the country. And, you know, it's true the rise of uh, anti-Semitism as a statistical count, uh, not just as a claim, is something that is, is demonstrated as well. And it's another area where public servants uh, have been very concerned about, again, the the public transit right here in Edmonton. There have been multiple attacks on uh, Muslim women in very, very public spaces in broad daylight. And those things don't go unnoticed, uh, particularly by those most at risk and sometimes not to the same degree by the rest of the population. But I think that's why it's important that we make sure uh, those of us who feel targeted uh, to raise those things and those who don't to listen very carefully to those who do.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear those discussions are still happening and ongoing because I think, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've been getting the emails of, this is the direction we're going. And mm-hmm. sometimes it uh, I'm sure some people have been thinking that there may not be room for flexibility in that, um, but I'm glad to hear from you that those discussions are being had. And and it seems like like you touched on one of the major things that we've been hearing from networks as well, which is the transit, which is the yeah. microaggressions in work, which is like yeah. how remote work offered us regional diversity is mm-hmm. um, more inclusive to women who have more childcare Responsibilities yep. at home and allow them to balance. So,
2: yep, I'm glad to hear that. I think it's critical that people raise those.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Like I think
2: this is, it's like anything. Um, those who don't know the things they don't know can't know them unless they they come onto their plate. They come into their presence. And, you know, it it can be a little nerve wracking sometimes raising issues Mm -hmm. that are both scary and frightening or that you wish you didn't have to raise in the first place. But that is the only way that we're going to make sure that we have the consideration given in the system on the other side those who are making decisions those who are supervisors and managers and directors and senior executives are paying very close attention to what's going on in the lives of uh, of their employees and it's partly why representativity is a critically important thing because you need people in those more senior positions as well who live similar experiences
0: well that's great i want to keep talking about it then i'll take that as an endorsement <laughs> but i could keep talking about it
1: just really a lot to to hear and, and and nice to hear what you've just mentioned about um you know uh, throughout this podcast one of the things that i was captivated by was um you mentioned if there's a book that you would advise or would suggest to people who are in those middle management senior management positions that is a book that would inspire them It'd be wonderful to hear from you about that
2: Yeah, there, boy, wow, there are so many. I usually give a list of five that I suggest people read, but I'm going to start a different place today. You know, what I would do is I would think about, and because we're mostly talking to public servants here, people are interested in public service. Think of some part of Canadian experience that you would agree, yeah, I don't know very much about that at all. It could be Indigenous people. It could be people who uh, live regularly in great poverty. It could be a 2SLGBTQQIA plus activist. It could be any number of people. Read something by them and leave it for a month or six weeks or two months and go back and read it again. And pay attention to two things. One. What the book is saying. Number two, when your stomach's getting in knots because you're finding it annoying, you're finding it difficult, you're finding it impossible to agree with. And talked earlier about the reality of people not necessarily being able to understand what their fellow citizens or fellow public servants are going through. Something like that exercise is a really useful one to see how we react when things are different. The other five books that I usually tell people about are these. Uh, The first one is The Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the oldest pieces of human literature known. And if you can differentiate it from an episode of The Kardashians, you're doing better than me. And Uh why would that matter? And it matters because the world has changed a lot, but human nature has not What Mm -hmm. we're afraid of hasn't. What we hope for hasn't. The range of human behaviors hasn't. That's actually a really important thing to know Mm -hmm. when you're trying to provide good governance to people. The next book is actually very similar in some respects. And it's called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Mm -hmm. And even if you only read the chapter on things for which I am thankful, here's an individual who's the most powerful individual in the western world at that point in time and certainly one of the most powerful individuals on the planet at that time rome at its greatest height uh considered a a god in roman religion takes the time to write about what he's thankful for and those things are very similar to what most of us would be thankful for today and it comes back to this theme the world changes but human nature doesn't change a whole lot Another book that I think is really important to read is The Guns of August by a woman named Barbara Tuchman. And to give you an idea of how good it is, she published it in 1956, you can still find it. And I think it's really important for anybody who works in large systems to talk about because what she uh, talks about is how the world got into the First World War. And the basic conclusion is people set up a bunch of systems on a bunch of assumptions and then left them unchecked. And those systems dragged us into a conflagration that killed tens of millions of people. And nobody really needed to have it happen, even from what their starting point was in their philosophies. But the critical importance of not letting systems take us to places that aren't in our interest to go. Another one that I really like is called Theodore Rex and it's by a guy by the name of Edmund Morris and if you were to ask about Theodore Roosevelt who's the subject of the book what do we remember of Theodore Roosevelt might be that he sort of depoliticized the public service in the U.S. to a great extent he created the U.S. national park system uh, laid the framework for the building of the Panama Canal uh, uh, took on and defeated the trusts in the US economy that sort of were strangling uh, capitalism and and other approaches to democracy. And what's interesting is as much as that's what we remember of him, that book is about how he fought tooth and nail and won every single thing that he won by 50.00001 to 49.99999 and that he lost an enormous number of battles and kept going to it now the second shortest book and it's the last one is a book called five days in may london 1940 by an author of the name of john lukacs and if you were to ask people today well why did the british choose churchill at the uh, to be Prime Minister at the beginning of the Second World War, a lot of people would say, well, because he was the best one to fight against the Germans. In fact, he was brought in to surrender, and it was thought that he would negotiate the best surrender terms with Germany, but he refused to play ball.
3: Ah.
2: And in five days, um, despite the ability to be turfed at any point in time, <clears throat> turned an entire country around him. for huge parts of it was very much on his own. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes down to the question of what difference one individual can make. Now, here's the shortfall in that list. Not one of them is about a person of color. Not one of them is about any other than a man. Mm-hmm. And it speaks in part. To the way our literature is Mm -hmm. it speaks in part to how we define heroes and i'm conscious of the fact that sort of in using that list that it adds to that Uh, but that's why i started where Mm -hmm. i started earlier which is to say go find someone that you don't know anything about who comes Mm -hmm. from a background that you don't know anything about Read what they have to say, but pay attention to how you're reacting when you run into the parts that are new to you or that you don't agree with or that uh, you know make you want to scream. And mm-hmm. then think about <clears throat> if I'm reacting to that when they say these things in this book, what am I doing in my work life as a public servant?
0: Mm-hmm. You know what I really appreciate in your list, that you go back to the classics and your main lesson is that, you know, we all still feel the same way as we did like thousands of years ago. And I think a lot of people or maybe just people on social media don't often think about it that way, that we're still engaging with the same types of emotions and feelings. And you have to acknowledge that to not get stuck in the same
2: cycles. In Kidu and others, you know, in, in Gilgamesh, uh, they're afraid of dying. Mm-hmm. They uh, want immortality. And so <clears throat> a big chunk of the book is about him trying to find the source of immortality. If you can tell me the difference between the rejuvenation surgeries on a bunch of, you know, oh, yeah. uh, reality TVs and his search for immortality, um, you know, you're doing a better job of analysis and understanding than I'm able to muster. <laughs> For sure. There are no news stories. That's right. They're just told differently. But there's power in that, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's power when we hear them today to cut through.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much, Deputy, for taking this time. I think you've given us a lot to think about.
2: Well, it was a real pleasure. And thank you for doing this. This is really important. I talk about the importance of conversation. This is a fantastic example. Well done.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ideanomics Podcast. We hope it was enjoyable for you as it was for us. For more anti-racism news, please follow us on our social media channels on Twitter, Iran Network underscore PS, and our LinkedIn, Anti-Racism Ambassadors Network.
0: If you would like us to discuss any topics on the podcast, or if you have any questions, please DM us on our social channels or email us at aran.publicservants at gmail.com. This episode was hosted by Sean Karmadi and Neha Shazad and produced by Marcella Popovich. Thanks so much and see you next time.